Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks as always for joining me. Absolutely, brother. And making her podcast debut, communications director for The Lincoln Project, Ryan Wiggins. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Ryan, after your fabulous and smashing debut on Lunch with Lincoln with Rick last Friday, we have now decided that we will give you a 14th job. So be careful. <laughs> I'll take it. As you know, in politics, when you do well, you get more work to do, not less. So, guys, today we're going to talk about voters who, contrary to partisan politics, do not really see voting rights or election reform as a top priority, as well as an interesting piece that Rick sent me from Politico that calls Republicans the, quote, barstool party. So let's get into it. One of the things that we've been talking about on the podcast and at the Lincoln Project generally is this ongoing battle for voting rights. And, you know, we talked about this, that the results of the 2020 election and what we saw with 1-6 sprung into life this whole effort across states, many of them conservative states, many of them southern states, to restrict the franchise, to make voting more difficult for communities of color, changing rules, changing dates. However, there's a whole segment of the voting population that is completely disengaged from this, doesn't seem to understand what all the fuss is about. Voters believe that other issues deserve attention, whether or not it's immigration, unemployment, climate change. You know, we see inflation popping up. And so, you know, Rick, I want to go to you first. I mean, what do you think about this? Is this one of those things where it's the off year and maybe now we're coming out of a pandemic so people are getting ready for freedom summer? What's going on? I think, Reed, one of the big things here is that we have a normalcy bias in this country. We would like to get back to being a regular country. We'd like to get past COVID and past the Trump chaos era. We'd like to just do normal things. And so people don't want to always look at the hot mess in front of them. It's like, we've got guests coming over, shove everything in the closet, and let's just try to have a nice time. And I think it's a problem because the Democrats are finally realizing that this election in 22 is going to be extremely consequential. They're also realizing, and I hate to say this, the bad guys are winning a few rounds here. And they need to understand that if you want to litigate about the Green New Deal right now, maybe you're not thinking clearly about what's at stake. If you want to fight about child care credits, maybe you're not thinking about what's really at stake. And this will be another election where we have a titanic cultural struggle. And right now, the right side of the equation has been very successful in telling its people that Donald Trump is the legitimate president, 1-6 was a tourist visit, and that the most important things in the country right now are crime and critical race theory. It may sound absurd to us, but inside that silo, inside that bubble, it's happening right now. And, you know, Ryan, to that point, you know, the New York City mayor's race is coming to its head. And I believe there was a survey last week that showed that 
of New York City primary voters, right? Vast majority of them. Let's just put it this way. If you win the Democratic primary in the New York City mayor's race, you're probably going to be mayor. That 83 percent of Democratic primary voters counted crime as their number one issue. And so I guess my question is this, is that you have, you know, at the national level, this fight over voting rights, a lack of understanding about what voting rights means, the kind of fight we're in, I think, among Democrats. But then at the local level, we have a situation where Democrats don't understand, apparently, that people do care about crime, that defund the police is a bad idea. So talk to me a little bit as someone who I think, as I said before, we started lives far more in the real world than Rick and I ever do. How do you account for this dichotomy? You know, Reid, I think that part of the issue right now is that not everyone does politics 24-7. You know, we live in this world and not everyone wants to live in this world. You and I and Rick, we all know this is a very, very intense place. And we just got out of a very intense election cycle that happened during COVID and was topped off by an insurrection before we had an inauguration. I mean, people are exhausted. And I think that the last thing that's on their mind right now is an election. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be in that world right now. They want sunshine and rainbows right now. And, you know, anytime we're trying to talk about, but you're still in danger, or anyone is trying to say you're still in danger, they don't want to hear it right now because they don't want that to be their reality. And the Dems also, Democrats, they never believed that voter fraud was a problem in the last election. It wasn't. So they don't understand why we would need to have this discussion anyway, because it wasn't an issue to begin with. So to some degree, the Democrats look at this and say, all we're doing is feeding Trump's messaging by continuing to talk about voter fraud and, and voting rights and all of that sort of thing. Everyone should have the right to vote. I think that Republicans, Trump did a very good job of convincing them that there was fraud and that their election was stolen from him. So they, regardless of what happens in this legislation, there is a sect of the Republican Party that is never going to vote again. So I think it is the messaging that has gotten out that makes them not care. I also think it is being overwhelmed by it for the past year. So, Rick, I got two questions for you. The first is, is there any way to get the national Democrats to understand that there's got to be, like you mentioned among Republicans, a unified front on messaging about this? That is one of the most difficult things in dealing with the Democratic Party, because, look, we all come from the Republican background and we are accustomed to getting on message, staying on message, being on message so often that everyone hearing our message goes, dear God, stop repeating your fucking message. I've heard it. And that's when we know it's sunk in. The Democrats have a much different flavor in their coalition. It's much more of a mosaic of different interest groups than it is. There are no enemies to our right. Move forward in the Republican Party. You know, I warn my Democratic friends, you think you have time, but you don't have time. Time is the luxury you do not ever get more of in a campaign. And right now we are rounding up to the end of June of the year before the election. And the Democrats are still in absolute chaos in the Senate. They have not honed down on a narrow set of messages. They are still being played by a lot of Republicans who think they're going to get an infrastructure bill, which they would dearly love and we probably really could use. But the Republicans are using it to just draw out the clock and run out the clock. Because, you know, Mitch McConnell and his chief strategist, Josh Holmes, who's a very, very powerful guy in Washington, probably the most powerful guy in Washington. Josh Holmes and Mitch McConnell are planning to block every single thing that Joe Biden sends them. And if the House majority is won and the Senate stays where it is, Biden is going to have a total chaos in the House, a roadblock in the Senate, 
and the last two years of his first term are going to be very difficult. The Republicans are running out the clock and the Democrats are wandering around going, well, what's the secret sauce where we can algorithmically figure out what combination of policies will make everybody love us and will win? We have an issue, sort of a meta issue of the Democrats being who they are generally, which is very dedicated to a certain set of things, not always able to communicate those effectively. But then how do we talk to voters right now in such a way that, you know, we can at least implant that, you know, a year from now, this is still going to be an issue. And I assume that the Republicans aren't going to get less crazy between now and then. And we haven't even gotten into primary season, which is nine months away. So how do we one, Rick, how do we set the narrative? And two, how do we prepare the battlefield in the minds of these marginal voters? And what I mean marginal is the people who will ultimately make these decisions. Well, first off, for voters listening to this podcast and for people listening to this podcast and who are followers of the Lincoln Project, you guys understand that what we are is an organization that believes in fighting with the bad guys. We believe in pushing back against narratives that are pushed out there by Fox and Facebook and the crazy Republican coop caucus. And because of who we are, we have a natural inclination for action. And we believe it's important to keep one six front and center because it is one of the most consequential moments in our recent history. And we believe it's important to keep accountability on the people who are funding the Republican Party now. Because if you are a corporate CEO, and whether you're at Citibank or Google or an investment bank or anywhere in that whole spectrum, if you're funding the Republicans again, and most likely by now you are, you're buying in to a rather massive and a rather dangerous movement that is seeking to overturn democracy in this country. And we say this a lot, and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it's important that people listen because I'm dead fucking serious. The bad guys only have to win a couple more elections, and then elections won't matter. Ryan, do you think that the individual American voter believes that if Republicans win, in 2022 or win the White House in 2024 that democracy ends? No, I don't. I think they should, but no, they don't. They don't because some of the rawness of January 6th has worn off. And to people who are not in the Republican Party, they feel like, you know, there's nothing really we can do anyway. I mean, they're not even taking this seriously in the halls of government when they were actually under attack. And I think Republicans and Democrats have cried wolf on this one way too many times. I think too many times we have said, well, if this happens, you know, he's Hitler, you know, or, oh, if this happens, it'll be the end of our country. This time it's serious. And, and I think it's really hard to get that message across because it's been used as a talking point flippantly for decades. Well, and Rick, I was just thinking as Ryan was saying that, that if you go back to the 2020 election to last year, which seems like a million years ago, that the Trump campaign's whole idea was that they could not win a high turnout election, that they needed to keep turnout as low as they possibly could because it was the only way that the margins would be on their side. And so last year they used political tactics, political strategy, political messaging. Now they are using the mechanics of government and the mechanics of voting to do that. So it's the same goal, but now they have utilized their authority to do so, to shrink the people who can vote. That's right. And out in the states, with the exception of Texas, which is you know going back into a special session, Republicans pretty much ran the table on anti-voting bills this year. They almost entirely ran the table. They have changed the rules at the ground level. And it's going to be very difficult, and Democrats are going to be shocked when they go and start trying to run the normal playbook for turnout, that people have been kicked off the voter rolls. 
that you can't use drop boxes. You can't go out and have groups collect absentee ballots. You can't go out and do a lot of the things that any rational person would say, that's eh, encouraging voting and it's not fraud. But because of that sweep they've made in a lot of the state houses, it is enormously important at this point for the Democrats to get off their asses and start doing early voter registration and early voter contact and to start pressing in on the mental landscape of people. Ryan's exactly right. It's hard. People don't want to. They don't like it. But, you know, this is what I always call like the black spot on your MRI. You see a black spot on your MRI and the doc goes, I don't like that. The answer is not, nah, I'm out of here. See you later. The answer is, <laughs> what do we do now? Ignore it and it'll go away. <laughs> right. It'll, it'll just go out. away. It's always worked out well. So it's really important, in my view, that we get a move on with people to motivate them so they understand the stakes at hand. And honestly, you know, we are in a situation where there's nothing we can do more important, in my view, than to push back against these anti-small-D democratic measures that are being passed all over the country. And secondly, for us to get out there and to begin to define the stakes and the narrative. And the third part is, again, to point out the funders and to point out the operators and to point out the people behind the curtain who are eagerly pushing this. I mean, look, Christian Adams and Han von Spakowski at the Heritage Foundation, those two guys have single-handedly designed almost every single piece of this anti-voting legislation. They are the responsible parties for the biggest rescission of voting rights since 1964 Civil Rights Act. And it's amazing to me that folks aren't paying attention to Heritage Action, who employs them, and to these guys individually. And, you know, we may end up back in that position relatively soon, but we are going to be talking about the funders. We are going to be talking about the architects of this thing. We are going to be talking about the guys who are like the intellectual architects of this rising tide of anti-American authoritarianism, you know, the Steve Bannons of the world. And we're going to talk about the people that are pushing it, like the J.D. Vances of the world. The purpose of conservatism is to punish our enemies. I missed that one when I was reading National Review growing up. Well, and, you know, Mike Pompeo, who just started his pack, douche pack, douche pack 2024, <laughs> said that, you know, he was starting his pack in order to, quote, crush his enemies. He's like the farthest thing from Conan in history. What is Mike Pompeo's goal <laughs> to see the buffet table before me, to drive it into my belly and hear the wailing and lamentation of everyone standing in line behind me? Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, he's, uh, yes, I'm, I, I don't even know where to go with that because I did not expect a, a Conan the bar Barbarian. But that's right. I mean, the whole point is, you know, there's this, Rick, as you like to use the word, transgressive nature of it, which is now not only violence in words, but we see violence indeed. Uh, you know, there's obviously the January 6th piece. There was a video over the weekend of a proud boy or one of those three percenters or one of those goons, you know, tearing apart like a pride poster on the side of a highway. I mean, just going crazy. And so I think we should see more of this. But we also, as we know, too, that the Republicans or the right or however we're going to call them are engaged in a culture war. I mean, we've always known that the right in this country fights on cultural grounds. The left tries to but tends to find themselves out of step with American culture. And so I want to turn to a story, Rick, that you sent me over the weekend from Politico by a guy named Derek Robertson called How Republicans Became the, quote, Barstool Party. And the article examines how the sports and lifestyle and bro culture brand that is Barstool Sports, created by a guy named Dave Portnoy over the past decade, compares very similarly to the Republican Party of Trump. You know, and the, the article identifies the birthplace of the Barstool Republican to a single moment 
when Dave Portnoy said this in a 2015 blog post. He said, quote, I'm voting for Donald Trump. I don't care if he's a joke. I don't care if he's a racist. I don't care if he's sexist. I don't care about any of it. I hope he stays in the race and I hope he wins. Why? Because I love the fact that he is making other politicians squirm. I love the fact he says shit nobody else will say, regardless of how ridiculous it is. And so, you know, Ryan, as someone who's probably had to put up with more than her share of brosifs in her day, I mean, what is the appeal of a guy like not only Portnoy, but of Barstool generally, as you see it, where the white guys now are feeling some sort of pressure, either real or imagined? There is no appeal. Women look at men like that and see weakness. They see insecurity. They appeal to other bros. But other bros are just as lost as they are. There is no appeal to it. And yes, I see it all the time. In fact, I cannot tell you how many times in 2016 I had people tell me they were voting for Trump because he would say what other people wouldn't say. It's like, well, he, other people won't say it because they shouldn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan and I have a very close friend, okay, who absolutely loved Trump's like fuck youism. Yes. And he still does. Mm -hmm. Even though he can see the wreckage, he's like, yeah, but, you know, he owns the libs, man. What does that even mean? Can we just talk for a second about owning the libs? Like, what the hell? Well, it's the outrage culture, I think, is that saying the thing that you shouldn't say specifically because you shouldn't say it, because you know it's going to offend. They want to see the reaction. My point is, is that, again, how insecure are you? How many times do you hear Democrats being like, well, we're going to own the repubs? Like, it's such a stupid, stupid, stupid thing to say. But, I mean, Rick, isn't it, as someone who, you know, attended a large Southern university with a very, you know, prominent culture and football, you know, and the whole thing on Saturdays, is that, you know, the truth is, is that there are a lot of white guys in America, maybe the majority of white guys in America, for whom, you know, Barstool is, it's sports, pretty girls, and a fuck you attitude. I mean, a lot of guys love that stuff. Ryan's right. There's a degree to which things like Barstool, it's really unappealing in the real world, but it's like a secret sauce inside the Republican Party now of wanting that, I'm a dick, I can say what I want. You know, it's the Cartman, I do what I want. It's appealing because it makes you fundamentally not have to be a responsible person. You can be a dick. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that most of these guys, like, they back the fuck off of it if it's around their family. You know, it's like the kind of thing that it has, like, a secret pleasure for some people. But society still goes, really? It's trash. And women see it as trash. And other men who are educated see it as trash. These are boys who never grew up. Which is also why a lot of our targeting last time was women, you know, former Republicans and Republican women who did not want to be associated with the things that were on the fringe of Trumpism, or not even the fringe, in the heart of Trumpism. They didn't want to be with the 300-pound guy with the long beard and the bulging eyes on the Michigan State Capitol calling for an attack. They didn't want to be the Confederate flag dude. They didn't want to be the jerk-off in Missouri with the AR-15 pointing it at black people. But isn't the appeal of Barstool or anything like that, and much of the Republican Party too, is it's raw, it's the lowest common denominator, piss off the libs, it makes me feel good. It's all about making, you know, otherwise insecure and potentially undirected people feel better about where they are in the world. You know, Reed, I was reading an article not too long ago, and it was talking about how these people end up in that situation. And one of the things it talked about was how impoverished white people are voting against their best interests by voting Republican, but they will die on that hill. And one of the things that it talked about was that they don't see themselves 
as they are. They see themselves as what they want to be. So they see themselves as inconveniently, temporarily misplaced millionaires who want so badly to be that because he's never been a cool kid. He's never been a jock. He's never been one of those guys. He's a poser and he's a follower and he's weak. And he's just like our president, our former president was. But Rick, I mean, one thing we should say is, you know, there's a working class male. And my guess is that Barstool's appeal cuts across demographics among men. And so don't you think that we have to understand that the coalition can be Democrats, independents, Republicans, but there are a lot of working class white men, you know, African-American men, Latino men who have gone to places like the Republican Party, who go to Trump against their own interests, as Ryan noted, because they don't feel like they have any place else to go. Nobody speaks to them. Nobody expounds on the world the way they feel it. Right. And look, there's an important thing to remember here. There is a degree to which the Democratic Party believes they can shame people into good behavior. And I do think shame is an important function in society, but too often it comes across as this sort of lecture to working class people. You know, fuck you. You don't understand the world. We do. We're the experts. And they rub their nose in it, where the old Southernism of you catch more flies with honey than vinegar is the truth. If you say to them, you're voting against your personal and economic health and interests, and we want to help you, and here's what we're proposing is one thing. If it's shut up, white boy, your privilege is so intense. You know, if you're telling somebody from the Florida panhandle who gets in a pickup truck every morning and goes and works construction, if you're telling them that their privilege is an overbearing burden and they need to shut up, you are begging the Republican Party to pick them up, even if they're Democrats on paper. To this day, a lot of white male voters in North Florida, they vote Republican every time and they're still registered Democrats. Ryan knows this. Yep. Dixiecrats. Dixiecrats and yellow dog Democrats, they still exist. And the culture war is the Republicans' very best friend in this fight. And look, on the one hand, I'm not very forgiving of some of the shenanigans that they get up to. I'm not a guy who says, oh, you know, their economic anxiety means it's okay for them to burn a tiki torch at Charlottesville and talk about getting rid of the Jews. I can't excuse that. But that's not to say that, that a person in Appalachia is not economically and socially and educationally and culturally in a position that many Americans would consider disadvantaged. And we have to be aware of that. And that is a pool from which authoritarians throughout history have frequently drawn a meaningful fraction of their support. So those guys that are out screaming, fuck you, I love Trump, they're not going to be easy to get on a policy argument. They may be better to get on an ideological argument where you convince them, hey, you're being played. But let me let me be a nerd here and insert a little bit of policy back into this, which is as the Democrats and President Biden are fighting to get an infrastructure bill done. Why aren't they appealing to working class Americans who say this is going to ensure you work for the next X months or X years as we repair thousands of bridges, hundreds of thousands of roads? It's a phenomenal question. And it's one of those mysteries that, you know, as we've had to now work with our former opponents and our current Democratic colleagues and friends, as we've had to move into this space, there are a lot of <laughs> mysteries like that that I'm constantly like, they don't get this, do they? Why don't they understand this? And I go back all the time. I've written about this. I've written this in my books. I've written this in articles. Democrats tend to be holistically bad at politics, and they have a unbelievable degree of faith that 
policy will allow them to arrive at some algorithmically designed message that balances out any of the cultural disconnects. It's like I have talked to many Democrats who said they straight face, oh, we won 2018 because of health care. You didn't. The drop off numbers were with Republicans. The drop off numbers were about Trump and the unacceptable messaging that Trump was putting out. Everything from the Muslim ban to kids in cages to his affect and his behavior to the corruption. And so it is important to never lose sight of the fact that policy has a place in our system. But if you think policy is going to win elections, I have a very sad set of facts for you proven out over many decades, because right now, not a single Republican who's out there could sit down, a Republican voter who's named critical race theory as an important issue, could sit there in front of you and go, well, critical race theory is this. They can't do it. It's a confection. It's a fantasy in their head. Whenever you've got a catalog of imaginary monsters that scare the crap out of people, the Republican Party will find them and exploit them. I think back to uh, 2017 when Mitch McConnell said, quote, winners make policy and losers go home. In elections, there are no moral victories. They are a binary choice. They are a zero-sum choice. We have single-member districts. We have first-past-the-post. We do not have proportional representation. We don't have any of those things that oftentimes in other countries serve as outlets or steam valves for this kind of stuff like we're now seeing in Israel, right, where finally a whole bunch of disparate groups came together to get rid of Bibi. And so if you want to change Washington or you want to change Tallahassee or Austin or Madison or wherever it is, you got to win on Tuesday. And that seems to be something that gets overlooked far too long. Well, let me ask you this, guys. So as we go forward here now, you know, we're in the summer. Last summer was the lost summer of 2020. You couldn't see your friends. You couldn't see your family. Couldn't go to barbecues. Couldn't go to concerts. So what do you think is going to happen politically now? I mean, it sounds like the Democrats are going to choose to go into recess in Washington, D.C., which means if they don't get infrastructure done before that, maybe it becomes that much more difficult. And so what do you guys see politically happening this summer? Ryan, I'll start with you. You know, Reed, I think that we are in a fortunate, unfortunate place where there's a lot of stability seen by the general public right now with the new administration. I mean, I think Biden is doing a really good job of at least making people feel safer. And I think it's stabilizing the economy. But I think that what you're going to see is Republicans freaking out because his approval ratings are so high. So you're going to see more propaganda coming out on Fox News. I think as the temperatures rise outside, you're going to see the temperatures rise in politics, too, because I think that the Republicans are scrambling. They know, just like we know that we have to win next year, they know they do, too. So I think that you're going to see them posturing a lot more and a lot more chest thumping this summer as they are preparing to set the stage and set the messaging, set the tone for 2022. Rick, how about you? I think that we're going to see an attempt to enforce the reality distortion field around Republican voters. You're going to see every night on Fox, you're going to see Tucker and Sean and Frau Ingraham and all the rest of them. They're going to be very intent on screaming about critical race theory or the pernicious Anthony Fauci and his damned vaccines, they're going to go after all these sort of imaginary things. You're going to see endless stories on crime. It's not the most sophisticated racial shorthand or anything, but you're going to see more stories about crime and violence than you have ever seen before. You will have the impression that, just as most Republican voters believe, Portland is a Mad Max hellscape full of radioactive waste and vicious mutants now that Antifa has burned the city to the ground. 
as opposed to setting a couple dumpsters on fire. You're going to hear a description of America where crime is rampant. There's gunfights in the streets. It's all those people doing it. And they're going to lure the Democrats once again into saying to fund the police. And they will fall into the culture war traps because as a chapter in my second book, culture wars are where Democrats go to die. They will not understand the culture war that's being waged against them, even though we will tell them. And they will fall into the trap of trying to litigate stuff like a crime wave or critical race theory or, you know, Antifa when you should just dismiss those things because they're all complete fantasies for the most part. Or the other side of that is question why they're baiting you with critical race theory. I mean, they're not baiting the base with critical race theory just because they're throwing spaghetti at a wall. They know that a big chunk of their base is racist and they know that invokes fear and that invokes turnout. So question why? Question why? Well, on that note, before we get out of here, Ryan, where can we find you on social media? I am on Twitter at Ryan underscore N underscore Wiggins. And that is where I'm most active. So I will see you guys there. All right. And Rick, how about you? I am on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Also the same thing on Instagram. And as always, everybody, you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Galen. We will see Rick on the breakdown. And I believe, Rick, you're going to host uh, Lunch with Lincoln again this Friday. And I thank you for that. Until next time, thank you so much for joining. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.